This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. We are. We are. We are Cultivate. 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 We are Cultivate. Hello and welcome to Yield Crime, where we discuss the funny, strange, and obscure crimes of yesteryear. I'm your host, Lindsay Valenti, and with me is my sister and co-host, Maddie Stengel. Hello. Hi. We also have a special guest behind you that nobody knows, but I never get to see Kona on screen. I know. She is hanging out with me because my oldest and one of her friends are downstairs watching the puppy bowl. And she freaks out whenever she sees animals on the TV. Oh. <laughs> she's a dork. <laughs> That's really funny. So she's one of those dogs that would like take out the TV if yes. they got too excited? Yes. Oh, man. So that's why she's up here with me. And that's why she's kind of pouting. Yeah. Like she looks content, but also disgruntled. Yeah. I have one correction. It's not really a correction. I just, this is the first time that we're recording this month. So I haven't had a chance (laughs) to say it yet. But I wanted to give a special shout out. Thank you to our monthly supporters over on Buy Me a Coffee. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you again to Elizabeth and Charlie. If you'd like to become a monthly sustainer as well, or you can give a one-time donation, there is a link in our show notes, or you can head over to buymeacoffee.com slash ye old crime, which is all one word. We send you a fun little thanks for being a friend package. And Thank you for being a friend. One of the perks of being a monthly sustainer is I give you a preview of what's going up that month before even Maddie knows what's going on. So, and I know nothing all the time. So, congratulations. (laughs) So, you get to know what will be coming that month before anybody else does, with the exception of me and the Lord. (laughs) 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 I don't know. Whatever. So, yeah, Yeah. if that sounds, that sounds fun, go to buymeacoffee.com slash yield crime and your welcome thing will include like fun stickers and stuff. Yeah. So. Who doesn't love a good sticker? I love a good sticker. Mm-hmm. All right. I'm just going to swan dive into it. This week, we are going to be discussing Bridget Dagnan. Nope. No bells. Not ringing. And I just realized that I did not translate some of these things. So. Heck yeah. Cool. Past Lindsay. All right. Information <laughs> was pulled from the following sources. <laughs> A 2022 All That's Interesting article by Bernadette Giacomazzo. 2017 Murder by Gaslight blog post by Robert Wilhelm. 2016 Irish Central article by Sheila Duane. 
1867, the Daily Evening Express article, 1867, I'm not going to say it because it'll give a lot away, by Reverend Mr. Brendan. That's a weird way to sign your name. In 1867, New York Daily Herald article, 1867, the North Devon Journal Herald article. In 1867, the Philadelphia Inquirer article. 1867, the Sterling Observer article, Encyclopedia, Find a Grave, and Murderpedia. Nice. And links to all of these articles will be included in the show notes. Got something you want to say? Shoot us an email over at yieldcrimepodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your story ideas, see any gifts you send our way, or if you just want to say hello. We're pretty friendly. Speaking of friendly... If you'd like to have real-time conversations with us, consider joining our Discord over at the Cultivate Network. You can chat with us over at the Old Crimers Cubby, or catch up with any of the other great creators that are part of the Cultivate family of podcasts. Just click the link in our show notes, or over on our link tree to get started today. And as you can probably guess by a name in one of the sources, this starts in Ireland. And did not look at pronunciation for some of these things i think i know how to say it so if i say is it is it gaelic or gaelic gaelic hey siri how do you pronounce gaelic yeah it's gaelic oh no it says gaelic what it says both of them it says both of them oh so both are right okay yeah it's either gaelic or gaelic all right so we're both right look at that look at us there you go Man, we can just lock that cubby up tight. We don't need it. <laughs> <laughs> so there aren't many concrete details to back up her own accounts of her life. But according to Bridget, she was born in 1843 in the village of Duncliffe, County Sligo in Ireland. Okay. Many sources report that she was born in 1844. I could not find a birth certificate to confirm, but I'm going to stick with 1844. Okay. As we're not clear on what exact month and day she was born. So it's entirely possible she was born towards the end of 1843. But I, yeah. Well, the bulk of them said 44. The record keeping of women is poor. So it's choice at best. Right. Okay. So this is one telling of her life story there are like four others and i stuck with this one because a lot of components of it rang more true to other parts in her story so i want to go on record and say even i am not 1000 percent positive on what her actual life story is but i'm going to go off of this and that's only because this was the narrative that was cited in a book written about her so i'm gonna trust that the author did their due diligence and they know more about this than i do nice pro author i like it if i'm wrong i'm wrong bridget stated that she had a pretty good childhood which is interesting considering she was born just a couple years before the start of the great famine (laughs) yeah you know it was really great i had a bunch of questionable potatoes it was fine In fact, by all accounts, it's more likely that she spent the earliest part of her youth in dire poverty and near starvation. Probably, yeah, like everybody else in Ireland at the time. Yeah. Except for like four people. 
At the age of 10, she joined her father at Kalila Bay. Yeah, we're going to go with it. Helping him unload barges. There, they lived as grifters, eating cabbage, and sleeping where they could find shelter, which was typically in barns or warehouses. You would be so small if all you were eating is cabbage, because isn't that like 60-70% water? Like, Yeah, it's mostly water. I don't think you would get a whole lot of nutritional value out of it, but... No. You definitely get fiber mm-hmm. and maybe some electrolytes, but that's probably it. And if you can't really drink anything, at least you're getting it through the food. Yeah. So Yeah. And it's better than nothing. Better than nothing. When her father's lungs started to fail him, the whole family, which consisted of Bridget's parents, a sister, and two brothers, although in another telling she said she has two sisters and two brothers. Again, it's crazy. Mm. They traveled to County Leitrim, where they were admitted to the workhouse at Carrick-on-Shannon. It was there that she watched her family slowly die one by one. Awesome. In 1865, when Bridget would have been 21, her mother, sister, and two of her brothers died from tuberculosis. That would check out, especially in a workhouse. Those conditions would not be sanitary in the slightest. No. Each was buried in unmarked graves behind the workhouse infirmary. After losing everyone but her father, Patrick, the pair decided to leave Carrick on Shannon to head back to Sligo. Patrick wanted to go back home before he died, he said. So her father was like, if I'm going to die, I want to do it back home. That's crazy. It's crazy that they started with him being the one with the poorest health. Yep. And then, he yeah. He was one of the last survivors. Mm-hmm. That had to be haunting for him. Yeah. The pair left Carrick on Shannon on foot in late March of 1866. The Union Poor Law Workhouse in Sligo, which hadn't had any room back in 1865 for Patrick and his family, now had vacancy in the men's section, but the women's accommodations were over max capacity with widows and children. At this time, there were organizations that would help destitute individuals emigrate. So Patrick asked to have some of the quote-unquote poor rate funds used to send Bridget to Liverpool and from there onto a ship bound for America. Oh, so it was fully funding to America, not just to England. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's significant. That would have been a lot of money for poor house. (laughs) Well, it was like, there were a lot of churches that did it, and not just workhouses, but I think there was also, there were a bunch of like weird discretionary funds that that people used as they were trying to flee the country during the famine. That makes sense. Bridget didn't want to leave her father, but he was insistent, promising better things to come once she arrived in America. So Bridget did as she was told. She traveled to Liverpool before boarding a ship heading to New York City. She was described as a stout Irish woman with plain features and drooping eyelids. This came from the newspaper, so... Rude. The New York Herald described her as, quote, a half-idiot or a half-witted creature in the full sense of the word, end quote. Damn. Yeah, she probably didn't have an education this entire time. Yeah, she was illiterate. Yeah, that checks out. When When would she have gone to school? She also spoke with a thick Irish brogue, which at times made it difficult for people to understand what she was saying. 
So I can see, because this is the the time of anti-immigration, people really didn't like the Irish, and they really didn't like if you were Roman Catholic. So I'm sure if she's talking in this really thick accent and you can't really understand what she's saying, they're just going to assume she's an idiot. Yep. Like, it's, it's pure ignorance and racism at its finest. Yep. So Bridget spent about... The timeline for this is, again questionable wonky at best because there are some sources that said she had been living in new york city for two years before this next phase of our story there are some that said she'd been there for like a year and then if the dates are to be believed it's more likely she was only here for a couple months although there was another telling that said she arrived around christmas time but that wouldn't make sense yeah there's a lot of this story that doesn't make sense so we'll just keep going Bridget was hired by a couple in Newmarket, New Jersey, named Dr. William Coriel and his wife, Mary Ellen, on October 22nd of 1866. She was to be their servant and wet nurse to the couple's two-year-old daughter, Mamie. Oh, so what? She would have had to have her own children then, wouldn't she, though? Here's the thing. (laughs) Okay. There are some accounts, which I will get into later on that say she didn't leave Ireland in the way that I told you she did, and that instead she was paid to leave after a dalliance with the son of her employer that resulted in her with child. And then she went to America, and it was taken care of. That would explain why she was able to be a wet nurse. Yes. Because you, you, you can't just do that. No, you have to have had a child. Yes, that doesn't just happen. I mean, I suppose it does in certain circumstances, but... Also, she is too. I don't know how much nursing in the 1860s a child did when they were two, but who am I to judge or say? Because I don't know. So it is also entirely possible that she was just going to be a nanny and she wasn't a wet nurse. That was just the verbiage right. that they used to describe her, so I kept it. Well, it might have just been the term of somebody who was watching a child of that age, too. Yeah, whether you are actually nursing them or not. Yeah, or maybe they were looking for a wet nurse for the family in case they had more children. Maybe. It could be a variety of things. Dr. Coriel, who was a Civil War veteran, He also treated Bridget for a neuromuscular condition known as catalepsy, which is often caused by shock or extreme trauma. I did see in several sources that he was instead treating her for epilepsy. So either way, she suffered from some sort of neurological disorder. That would make sense. I mean, if you think of how she ate when she developed and what she did, I mean, she could have easily gotten hurt as a kid. Damaged some part of her brain, gotten epilepsy that way, gotten it from being sick at some point, malnutrition at any point. Mm -hmm. Because record keeping is so great, we have all of the answers. So people just died and they were like, yep, they died. We never really looked into it unless they were murdered. So bear in mind, she's got some sort of neurological disorder in another telling of her story. She had been getting treatment from Dr. Coriel before she started working for him and his family. Mm. So that's, that's another story, but 
I mean, it could be. That's something where, you know, you're getting treated. You're talking about stuff. She needs a job. He needs a wet nurse. There you go. So, despite the fact that Bridget adored Mamie and took exceptional care of her, Bridget and Mary Ellen did not get along at all. It's the tale as old as time. Yep. The pair constantly butted heads, and it only got worse when Bridget began to develop feelings for the doctor, taking his care of her and her condition as signs of a more romantic nature. Right. Because how many... How many men would have been that kind and understanding and nurturing mm-hmm. in her life, if it, if any, up to that point? Yep. And she might have fallen for any doctor treating her at What's that point. Or even just anybody being kind to her, really. I mean, yeah, honestly. Finally, after a turbulent four months of service, Bridget was let go, with her last official day being February 25th, 1867. Originally, they wanted her out of the house on the 22nd, but she had not been feeling well. She must have had Mm. a recent spell, and they felt bad about turning her out if she's obviously, like, not feeling great. So they were like, hey, you can stay for a few more days, but then you are going to have to leave. Like, that's just how it's going to go. So that evening, the evening of February 25th, at around 6 o'clock, although times here vary, between mm-hmm. 6 and 8 in the evening, the doctor was summoned across town to visit some of his patients, leaving mm-hmm. Bridget alone with Mary Ellen and little Mamie. He told his wife that he did not anticipate being home until the early hours of the next day, so that she should not wait up for him, which, I mean, it was already like 6 o'clock. Yeah, so it's probably somebody super sick that he might need to observe or something potentially or maybe he's staying there too you're if you're going across town treating somebody in the middle of the night they're gonna want you to stay well and another source that said he was delivering a baby so like oh he'd yeah probably be there for oh, the a while knows. yeah so who knows either way he left and while the doctor was out it said that bridget stabbed and then mercilessly beat mary ellen to death at 1 a.m on the morning of February 26th, before setting the house on fire to cover her tracks. Oh. (laughs) Yeah, this is a quick progression. (laughs) Wow. That's that's quite the escalation. Yeah. Especially since they felt safe enough to where they, that was not a threat. Otherwise, she would have been out on her her ass a long time ago. Mm Mm-hmm. Fuck. Following this... She grabbed young Mamie and ran to the home of Israel Coriel, who was the doctor's cousin, for help. And she was screaming that robbers had broken into the home of his cousin and that she feared Mary Ellen was being murdered. Mm, right. So Israel instructed Bridget to go to the home of his neighbor, the Reverend Little, to wake him while he ran to the main street to ring a large bell that acted as a signal of general alarm. So kind of like, you know. The town... The town, the town crier type of, of type of bell thing. Yeah. yeah, Israel, the reverend, and two other men followed Bridget as she led them back to the home of her employer. And just so you know, Mamie was fine. She was left in the care of the reverend's wife. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, they would not have let a baby go back into that situation. No, I was like, "Where is the baby?" <laughs> and then, like, one thing is said, <laughs> Reverend Little's wife 
gladly took care of Mamie while they were gone. And I was like, great. That answers that question. Yeah. Super. When the group arrived, the house was filled with smoke that seemed to originate in one of the bedrooms. After putting out the flames, the group brought in a light and found a gruesome scene. There were signs of a struggle, torn clothes, pillows ripped open with their feathers strewn about the room, and a broken chair. Everything was covered in blood. Oh, fuck. In the middle of the floor lay the body of Mary Ellen, who had been brutally attacked and murdered. According to the August 31st, 1867 edition of the Philadelphia Inquirer, quote, The condition of the body showed that a desperate and protracted struggle had taken place. There were three deep gashes on the right hand, all cutting through to the bone, and six large gashes on the head. Altogether, there were on the corpse 26 distinct gashes, excluding those on the hand, while the cuts and scratches that simply went through the skin were almost innumerable. In the right groin, there was a wound an inch in length and another on the left. There was another wound three inches in length on the right leg and other shallow cuts about the legs and back. The right leg and both arms were black and blue. The face was badly bruised and much swollen, and from one of the shoulders, a large piece of flesh had been gouged entirely out. The right ear was nearly cut through, and on the face were the imprints of four upper teeth. On the throat, there were at least a dozen different cuts, one of them having severed the jugular vein and thereby relieved the mutilated woman from her sufferings. The corpse was covered with blood, especially about the neck, shoulders, and chest, and a large quantity of it had issued from the mouth and nostrils, as well as from the gaping wounds. The hair was also matted with blood and feathers, and a portion of it had been torn from the scalp. Jesus. Yeah, this is a super violent death. And then the quote ends, Was ever a fouler, more horrible crime than this committed by a fiend in human shape? End quote. That's that's an angry, desperate person. When originally questioned, Bridget claimed that Mary Ellen was the unfortunate victim of a home invasion and burglary turned deadly. Earlier in the evening, around 8.30, she stated that two men had come calling looking for the doctor. After being told that he was already out on a call, the men left, but returned two hours later, although in some reports they returned at 11 p.m. So again... Timing is questionable Mm. at best. Right. This time, Mary Ellen let them into the home, and shortly after, Bridget heard her screaming that she needed to grab Mamie and run for the doctor, so Bridget grabbed the toddler and ran to Israel's home. This initial report was quickly telegraphed to surrounding police departments in New Jersey and New York. While the police began looking for their suspects, later that day, a coroner's inquest was called at the home of Dr. Coriel. The murder weapon, a knife that had come from Coriel's own kitchen, had been found in the outhouse. Bridget was questioned and testified that she knew both men who had come to the house, Barney Doyle and John Hunt. The pair apparently held grudges against the doctor, as noted in the March 1st edition of the Daily Evening Express. Quote, she, being Bridget, states Mm -hmm. that two weeks ago on Sunday, she had a conversation with Barney Doyle and John Hunt, employees on the New York Central Railroad at Newmarket, when one of them said he, quote, would have revenge of the doctor, dead or alive, because he had killed Ellen Doyle's child, end quote. 
Ah, so because he couldn't save somebody, yep. he killed her. Got it. We're familiar with that story. Mm-hmm. Nothing like the link of healthcare and witchcraft and murder. Yeah. Both men were brought into court, and Bridget once again identified them as the men she saw at the house the night of the incident. However, both men had alibis and witnesses to vouch for them, so they were quickly eliminated as suspects. Bridget then told the court that actually, it was a servant girl named Anne Lennon who had committed the crime. According to Bridget, Anne had taken the butcher knife from the kitchen to arm herself as she planned to rob the home of Dr. Coriel. Anne was brought in for questioning. And she, too, had a solid alibi. Oh, no. At the trial, Dr. Coriel testified that Mary Ellen had wanted to get rid of Bridget, and they planned for her to be dismissed on February 22nd, like I mentioned. Mm -hmm. But Bridget had fallen ill, so they had agreed to let her stay until she was feeling better. A witness testified that she had observed Bridget changing her clothes not long after the murder. In the June 27th edition of the North Devon Journal-Herald, it was reported as follows, quote, There was another damning circumstance against her. The cries for help, which she declared she heard as she ran out of the house, had been heard by other persons also, who noted the time when these fearful screams and cries of, Oh, my poor baby, woke them out of sleep. And it was more mm. than half an hour afterward when Bridget Durgan they liked to misspell her name, presented herself at Mr. Coriel's door, pretending that she had just run from the doctor's house, which was not more than two minutes walk distant. Mm. Where had she been in the meantime? If she had loitered on the way, that was proof enough of her complicity. If she had come direct, she could not have left the house until the bloody work was over. She must have known that it was a worse crime than burglary which had been done, and all her story to the persons whom she summoned was a fabrication. Cuts were found upon her hands, and it was noticed as an indication of her purpose to run away that immediately after the alarm had been given, she went to her room and put on four or five dresses, one over another, end quote. Yeah, that's not a good look. No. When it came to the teeth marks that had been left on Mary Ellen's neck, although I think it was more on the cheek, yeah. under the supervision of a dentist... An impression of Bridget's teeth had been taken in wax. The bite marks were compared to Bridget's unusual bite and determined to be an exact match. Oh, no. Unfortunately for Bridget, there were a couple holes in her story, like the suspicious spot of blood on her dress, which was suspected to actually belong to Mary Ellen, as in the dress was Mary Ellen's, and the fact that she reeked of kerosene on the night in question. The coroner's oh. jury deliberated for just 15 minutes before charging Bridget with the willful murder of Mary Ellen Coriel. She was then taken to Middlesex County Jail in New Brunswick to await trial. In the press, Bridget was painted as a sort of monster. The following was written about Mrs. Coriel in an article about the murder. Quote, The unfortunate victim, Mrs. Mary Ellen Coriel, was aged about 25, a woman of uncommon beauty and suavity of manners. She was regarded by the citizens of Newmarket as a person whose gentle nature and goodness of heart were sufficient of themselves to make her loved and respected by all who knew her, and it thus may be naturally supposed that the excitement and horror occasioned by the frightful manner in which the murder was committed were not lessened by the fact that the victim was a general favorite in the neighborhood." End quote. 
Just as an aside, I couldn't verify Mrs. Coriel's actual age. It varied from 25 to 31 everywhere I checked, and there was no date of birth on her find-a-grave listing. Mm -hmm. And actually, according to Ancestry.com, she was born in 1834, which would have made her 33 at the time of her death. So, who knows? Apparently nobody. (laughs) Nobody knows. Late 20s, early 30s. That's what we're going to go with. The trial started on May 20th, 1867. And as you can imagine, there was a lot of public interest in the case. Yeah. The courtroom was at capacity each of the 11 days of the trial, during which over 70 witnesses provided testimony. However, none of the witnesses shared any sort of details that hadn't already been shared during the coroner's inquest. Mm. Bridget continued to hold to her story that the two men had committed the murder, and her attorneys, Mr. Adrian and Mr. Leop, stated that nothing in the various testimonies that had been heard could contradict her statement. They also claimed that it would have been impossible for Bridget to commit the murder without being absolutely drenched in Mary Ellen's blood. There would have been no way for her to wash away all of the blood and gore and change clothes before running to Israel's home to request help. Because mm. nowhere did it say, like, that she was wet, like, that her hair was yeah. wet or anything. Like, right. if you inflicted the damage that we heard she inflicted, you yeah. would be covered in blood. Right. Coated. Especially if, if she cut the jugular. Yeah. Because that would have shot right out. Yeah, yeah. Like, so she would have had, uh, it would have been like in her finger. It would have been everywhere. So she, if yeah. she didn't have it on her, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, that is strange. The prosecution did their best to present a compelling case against Bridget, even though all of the evidence was circumstantial at best. Yeah. On May 31st, 1867, it took the jury only 20 minutes of deliberation before they came back with a guilty verdict of first-degree murder. Bridget Dagnan was sentenced to death by hanging by Judge Radenberg, with her date of execution set for August 30th, 1867. Yeah. During the months that followed prior to her execution date, Bridget gave three separate confessions, with some of the details being contradictory. Many mm. people believed that there was no way she could have acted on her own and that she was keeping silent to protect the second party that had helped her. A woman named Mary Gilroy was a person of interest, and she had testified during Bridget's trial. Mary was a known pickpocket, and she had befriended Bridget when she had been residing in New York City. Mary Mm. was questioned after Bridget's trial and held as a possible accomplice. On June 17th, Bridget was brought to the courthouse in New Brunswick, at 10 a.m. with her attorneys to request an appeal and a new trial. Despite the efforts of her counsel, the motion for a new trial was denied. Bridget gave her fourth and final confession the day before her scheduled execution. In it, she shared that she acted alone, removing Mary as a person of interest, and that the motive wasn't robbery, but in fact that she wanted to get rid of Mary Ellen so that she could take her place. Which was probably a little true. Yeah. It was probably something she always wanted. When she heard that the doctor was being called away that evening, she grabbed the butcher knife and put it in a convenient place so she could use it later to kill Mary Ellen. In the confession that was published in the Sterling Observer, she stated the murder as follows. And this is pretty long, but I wanted to share it. Quote, My mind had been previously made up that I would put her out of the way sometime when the doctor was absent. 
I waited until she got soundly to sleep, and when all was still outside and not a sound inside, I thought it a fitting opportunity, and I took up the little chair of the child's, which was in the room, and creeping stealthily up to her, I struck her with it on the head twice. Mrs. Coriel was only stunned by the blows, and jumping on her feet, she staggered once or twice, and when she partially recovered and found it came from me, she exclaimed, Don't kill me, Bridget, and grasped me by the throat to struggle with me for her life. During this time, I bit her on the cheek to make her release her hold. Then she picked up a chair and struck at but missed me. She then ran out of the door upon the porch into the garden. I ran after and brought her back. And as I came in, Mamie, the baby, stood in the middle of the sitting room floor. And as she passed, she stooped down, embraced, and kissed it. When I seized the bread knife, which I had previously prepared and placed on the table in the sitting room, and stabbed her two or three times, when she grasped the knife, and in my endeavors to wrench it from her grasp, cut her hands very terribly. After releasing her hold upon the knife, I took hold of her and pushed her in the bedroom. And as I was doing this, she resisted and placed her bloody hands against the door. But I succeeded in forcing her into the room and threw her on the bed, where I stabbed her repeatedly with the knife. As I was forcing her into the bedroom, the kerosene lamp, which was burning, got upset. And after stabbing her about 20 times with the knife, I let her lay on the bed, supposing she was dead. I then picked up the lamp and poured the contents of it on the bed and over her, and went out and shut the door. I then sat Mamie on the lounge and went upstairs with a light and commenced to ransack the bureau to make an impression that robbers had been there, and in my haste to overhaul the things, the bureau was upset. I placed the lamp on the window, and after the bureau capsized, I ran downstairs and forgot the lamp. I then changed Mamie's clothes and took the little frock it had on, it being bloody, and rolled it in a paper and put the end of it in the stove and lit it, and opening the bedroom door, I threw it on the bed. I then shut the door and fastened it and sat down on the lounge and took up little Mamie. I then heard a noise at the bedroom window and ran out on the porch and saw Mrs. Coriel standing at the window with both hands clasping the windowsill. I pushed her and she fell dead upon the floor. I returned to the sitting room and again took up little Mamie and left the house, end quote. Hmm. So if that were true then, right, and she stabbed her a bunch of times, it could be be where Mary Ellen was the one that did the last slitting of her throat because she was already in a room that was on fire with no Mm. way out. Yeah. I mean, that could be the explanation for the final thing of blood and why she didn't have any honor. Because if she was still alive, potentially. Well, and if Bridget had several dresses on, maybe she had so many on to cover up the one that had blood on it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know. Crazy that they didn't check her, too, you know, to see if she was okay, what wounds she had. They said she had wounds on her hands, but that was it. Mm. The following day, on August 30th, 1867, interest in the execution was at such a fever pitch that the 3rd Regiment of the New Jersey Rifle Corps had to be mobilized and surround the courthouse in New Brunswick to keep the peace. Dang. New Jersey state law required that executions be private, prohibiting the admittance of anyone that was not legally required to be there, such as the sheriff, his deputies, and other officials. Mm -hmm. So, to get around this, J. Manning Clarkson, the sheriff of Middlesex County, sold tickets to 
500 individuals and then had them deputized so they could stay and watch the execution. That's really fucked up. Mm -hmm. Bridget was led to the scaffold by two Catholic priests, Father Rogers and Father Dugan, and after performing the last rites at 10.15 a.m., she was hanged from the gallows. After hanging for just under four minutes, Dr. Edward Young confirmed that her heart had ceased beating and that her neck hadn't been broken, but that she had instead died of strangulation. She was 22 years old. Jeez. And potentially the only remaining relative. Mm-hmm. Wow. What a horrific end to an entire family. Yep. So, I have a little bit more. Obviously, we are firmly in the age of yellow journalism. That's why so much mm-hmm. of this information is conflicting. Right. You should give a little descriptor of yellow journalism for those that don't know what that term means. Because I feel like we are in the age of real news, fake news. Yeah. Yellow journalism was something different. So yellow journalism is essentially journalism that is based upon sensationalism and crude Mm -hmm. exaggeration. So think like clickbait would be an example of modern day yellow journalism. You won't believe what happened to this woman. It was made as sensational as possible to sell papers. And and so like people could shout those headlines too and yep. shock and awe and get people yep. to get them. Yep. The quotes that I'm going to share from you come from the September 19th, 1867 edition of the Sterling Observer, which is published in Scotland. And I found their interpretation of the case extremely interesting. Hmm. So I'm just going to share a couple paragraphs. Quote, Bridget Durgan, again, mm-hmm. misspelling her name, the New Jersey murderess, was jerked into eternity yesterday morning, such is the American way of putting it in an unseemly manner, in the presence of one of the roughest, rudest, and most ungentlemanly crowds of men we ever saw. At 10.10, the procession appeared in the jail yard, when ensued a scene such as we hope never again to witness. The crowd surged to and fro. Every man pushed for position. Oaths and profane ejaculations of the most outrageous nature mingled with cries and calls, such as one may hear at a circus, end quote. Yeah, I mean, hangings have been entertainment since their inception. Mm -hmm. People have always had a really intense fascination of death Mm -hmm. in all aspects. Bridget was later buried in the St. Peter's Roman Catholic Cemetery in Jersey City after being moved there from her original resting place at the Old Catholic Cemetery in New Brunswick. Over a hundred years later, author Sheila Duane had many questions about the legitimacy of Bridget's court ruling. To her, the case had all the hallmarks of an anti-Irish and anti-Roman Catholic smear campaign. Part of her evidence had to do with the fact that papers of the time constantly misspelled her name. She was listed as Durgan or different variations of that. Mm -hmm. At this moment in time, anti-immigration sentiments were growing, especially when it came to Catholics. Since little was known about her and the fact that she was illiterate, the press had no problems painting her as a murderous femme fatale, working her way up from sex worker to maid with the intention of being the lady of the house. Yeah, that's quite the dramatization at that point. Additionally, as I said, there were so many versions of Bridget's confession that there was no possible way to know what was fact and what was fiction 
under the guise of justice. Not only that, but different people charged different amounts to sell Bridget's confession, claiming theirs was the true one. Examples of crooked pamphlet and newspaper productions included that of Mr. David T. Jeffries, who agreed to sell the story for $1,000 or $21,000 today in gold, hmm. Randolph, who it's believed was a jailer at the, at the prison in which she was held, would sell her confession for $250, or around $5,000 today, in gold or currency. Jeez. One evening newspaper paid $50, or $1,000 today, to run one of her confessions. God. And one such version that was published in The Life and Crimes of Bridget Durgan, which I mentioned in my sources, mm -hmm. is as follows. And this is a very snapshot. When she was 12, she was put into the service of a man in a nearby village to earn a living, which was a very common practice at this time. She stated that she served at that house for three years before the son, a man named James, took a more pointed interest in her, shall we say. According to Bridget, following this entanglement, she notes in the book Life, Crimes, and Confession of Bridget Durgan that she made the choice to leave Ireland entirely and head to America to start over. She would have been 15 years old or so at this time, and in her own words, hinted that she had been in the family way, which prompted her to leave the country rather than live in disgrace in Ireland. Some sources state that her father and potentially others helped fund her trip to keep the whole thing quiet. Mm -hmm. After emigrating to America, she gave birth in a charity hospital and worked at a brothel in the slums to earn a living. She escaped from a police raid, fleeing to Brooklyn, where she took on work as a maid. Unfortunately, Mrs. Horning, her employer, hated her, and it was only due to the appearance of Mrs. Horning's husband that prevented Bridget from stabbing her. After leaving the employ of the Hornings, Bridget traveled to Newmarket, New Jersey, where she was employed by the Coriels. And then she stabbed that one. <laughs> yep. There were some theories that she was coerced into murdering Mary Ellen by her husband, Dr. Coriel, mm. and although... He was not considered a suspect or an accessory to murder at that time. Let's play devil's advocate. Say he did. Yeah. During several interviews with a number of journalists and at the trial, he was adamant that nothing untoward took place between him and Bridget prior to her employment at his home and during her employment at his home. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. I feel like his interactions with her were likely very genuine. Of a doctor treating a patient and mm -hmm. seeing a patient in dire need of some help that he and his family could provide. And that is the troubling life and death of Bridget Dakenen. That's so sad. I know. I feel bad that it was so, like, disjointed. But really, it was... This was one of the few cases where just I could not find anything that... Really validated... 100% validated anything, really, yeah. other than the concrete aspects of her life, which were her death. Yeah. It just kind of furthers the, the notion that this was a fueled campaign. If you're interested in ad-free content, consider supporting us with a one-time donation either over on Buy Me a Coffee or our Venmo page, both of which are in our link tree and in the show notes.
This is That's So Fucked Up, a podcast about cults, murder, and other fucked up stuff. Like, really, really fucked up stuff. He tore out her heart, tied it to a rope, and hung it on the wall. Fucking sharks ate Mark under the dinghy. After his dad dies, he fucking marries all his dad's oh, wives. Oh, yeah. He, like, marries all his stepmoms. <laughs> I'm your host, Ashley Love Richards. Find That's So Fucked Up anywhere you listen to podcasts. That's Fucked Up. And this month's podcast plug is the That's So Fucked Up podcast. Host Ashley and a bevy of amazing co- and guest hosts tell enthralling stories using comedy and thorough research to explore what inspires people to do the awful things that they do. And we will have a link to her show in the show notes. Nice. And this week's listener question comes from our friend, Carrie Ann. Hey, Carrie Ann. And she would like to know, you wake up as a performer for a medieval king's court. What oh, no. do you do to entertain him? Oh, no. Probably some sort of fire breathing. Because I feel like that would be fun and a good way to get drunk while working. Because I feel like being the entertainment for a king is a pretty high risk job. Yeah. If you don't do well. And so I feel like getting fire might be a fun final activity just in case <laughs> mm -hmm. i don't think i'd be confident enough to sing or perform musically especially not knowing which king oh yeah you know that makes a big difference too or where in medieval times even are you in yeah. russia i briefly thought of like doing dog tricks but that could so easily be witchcraft <laughs> good right good. they'd be like oh my god she's in the mind of the dog she's a witch killer so yep. I feel like fire breathing's pretty safe. <laughs> there you go. What about you? I heard flatulence was a big hit, so maybe I would just fart yeah. all the time. Fart and belch and like joke. And they'd be like, "That's dope. Thanks." And I'd be like, "Thanks for not killing me. Yep. You're welcome, Your Highness." Like, thanks for the dysentery that this uh, yeah enhanced my performance. <laughs> thanks for letting me have this meat that's been sitting out all day. Yeah. It's really good for my, my gastro performance. Right. On that note, what's something good you'd like to share? It's been a couple of weeks since we've recorded. So I think the last time I said that I was going to meet my coworkers for the first time. Mm -hmm. And I did. And a lot of them are super awesome. And it was really nice to meet everybody. And it was a terrible week to visit San Diego because it was cold and cloudy and rainy the entire time. Downtown San Diego flooded the day we flew in. Nice. So that was super fun. Everybody was really lovely and everybody was really nice and respectful with Willie. And Willie had a great time. My service dog, he travels super well. There were a couple of times where I let him off leash so he could chase seagulls. Because mm. he just really loved to chase the birds. Like he never really does anything. He doesn't try to catch them. He just runs at them. And delights in their sassy squawking mm -hmm. after the fact. So he had a great time. It was awesome. What about you? My something good is going to happen after we get off our recording. Nice. <laughs> so it will have already happened by the time this comes out. Right. My youngest, for whatever reason, she's been really getting in, interested in football, American football, this mm -hmm. year. Oh, for whatever reason. There's definitely not a pop star that has been influencing. Well, pri even prior to this, even prior to T-Swift, a lot of her friends watch it. And so she wanted 
to like see what the fuss is about. Yeah. So we are having a mini Super Bowl party tonight. Cute. So do you have like little foods, like little weenies and nachos and stuff? So we're going to make pizza and then we bought a bunch of like snacks, like charcuterie board type stuff and yeah, things like that. So yeah. Nice. Fun. That'd be awesome. Yeah. So we'll see how she feels about it. Yeah. She's going to be staying up late. So she'll be tired tomorrow. She might just get to a point where she's like, meh, I'm done. <laughs> and <laughs> I'll be like, fair. 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 Yeah. We'll find out in the morning who won. Yeah. All right. Ready? Ready. Looking for more content? You can find us online at yieldcrimepodcast.com. If you'd like to see pictures from this week's episode, not to mention bonus content and funny memes, make sure to follow us on Twitter at yieldcrimepod and on Facebook and Instagram at Yield Crime Podcast. On TikTok? Of course you are. Follow us at Yield Crime Podcast. A great way to support the show if you want to help out, but you can't do so financially, is to leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, Good Pods, Podcast Addict, or Audible. If you want a playlist of all our episodes on YouTube, Click the link in our show notes or in our link tree and subscribe today for not only a list of our full catalog, but a separate list as well, just of our Can You Crack the Cramp Word segments. Our store will have a sale February February 22nd <laughs> to the 25th if you would like to enjoy 35% off our merchandise. And on that note, as always, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Madison. And we'll see you next time with another tale. As old as crime.